Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. I hope that you all are, are, are doing well. And again, it is always good to see each and every one of you. Uh, these days, we should always be thankful and mindful and, and grateful for each Sunday that we get to see one another and, and be with one another. You never know when one or two or three or ten of us will be sick. And so we want to be mindful of that and be grateful for our time that we get to gather together, as well as be in prayer for those who are unable to be here either this morning because of their sick or whatever it may be. So we want to be in prayer for, for them. But we are truly grateful for the Lord's provision for this day. This is the day that the Lord has made, and we shall rejoice and be glad in it. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter this morning, to the 1 Peter, and we will be starting chapter 4 this morning. So we are starting a, a new chapter this morning, but take note and remember that those chapters are more or less, they're arbitrary. Uh, they're not part of the, the canon, they're just part helpful for us to be able to search in the scriptures, and that makes a lot of sense, especially in today's passage as the end of chapter 3 certainly flows right along with chapter 4. I want to really quickly recap chapter 3 as we begin chapter 4. Chapter 3 begins with a call to submit and to be subject to authorities as the last of the, of the three there in verses 1 through 6. Next he tells us to have a unity of mind, to have sympathy for one another to have brotherly love for one another, a tender heart toward one another, and a humble mind toward one another. Verse 8, do not repay or give back evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but as Christians, we are called to be a blessing. And he tells us very specifically in that passage that we will be a blessing and we shall receive a blessing. Verse 9, now, all of that, remember, is in the context of suffering. Don't take out your pain and your suffering on the church. But remember that in your suffering, we are to endure. And as the church, we see those who are suffering, and we are to be gracious and long-suffering with them who are suffering. In your sufferings, do not take revenge on those who are causing your suffering. Do not take into your own hands vengeance and revenge. Trust in the Lord. And rather, instead, be a blessing. Be zealous for good and for righteousness. Even if you do suffer, you will be blessed. Verse 14. Don't fear or be troubled by your persecutors, but replace your fears with honoring Christ. Verses Verse 14 and 15, be prepared to tell your faith in the joy that you have in Christ despite your suffering. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Verse 17, and that is why, and why is it better to suffer for doing good rather than for doing evil? Remember, that's the question we started with last week. Because verses 18 through 22 tells us that Christ has already walked the road of suffering and death 
being a sacrifice and substitute for sin once and for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. And he was fully vindicated in his suffering, being resurrected from the dead. And being resurrected, he has proclaimed his victory over evil and has told of their doom. And he has everything and everyone in subjection to him. And that's the umbrella that covers us as we read our passage this morning. 1 Peter chapter 3, but not chapter 3, chapter 4. About messed up again. Chapter 4. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For that time the past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery they malign and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear and to see his holy, inspired, inerrant word for his glory and for our joy. Amen. That's right. Avery, I love it. If you didn't notice, this passage has another mysterious and controversial text. If you look again at verses 5 and 6, Peter talks about judging the living and the dead. And then the whopper is in verse 6. Did he just say the gospel should be preached to the dead? Should we start a new ministry to the morgue? Should we prepare young men to be sent out to cemeteries to preach? And I mean real cemeteries, not dead hearts of men cemeteries like Ezekiel. Well, they were dead too. If that's true, then pragmatically speaking, wouldn't all of our evangelism be more effective at the morgue and cemetery? Because there, at least, we have a captive audience. Uh, jokes aside, we're going to deal with that text later on. But what we have received at the end of chapter 3 was encouragement. We saw Christ's victory is our victory. But what we just read in chapter 4 is getting back to the matter at hand, and that is suffering. And Christians that endure suffering. How to suffer well. So what do we think about suffering? What is your opinion, your thoughts about suffering? What, what comes to your mind when you hear about someone who is suffering? 
We certainly think it's tragic. Often cases we think of how unnecessary it was or, or sad. And sometimes we even think it's meaningless. You know, we could speak for days on the subject philosophically on suffering, that suffering is part of the human experience in one way or another. Philosophy has sought to, to deal with the problem with suffering. Philosophers often deny the reality of suffering as being only in the body, in material, and if the body is worthless and meaningless, then suffering at best is, is worthless. And if you are suffering, and if your suffering is prolonged, then there must be something wrong with you in your line of thinking. A turn-of-the-century German philosopher and theologian Albert Schweitzer claimed that the cruel death of Jesus, with all of his suffering on the cross, was nothing more than an unfortunate result of na uh, being naive, naivety. That Jesus was just misguided, and he never saw his suffering coming. Well, that, that's just stupid. Clearly, Jesus saw his suffering teaching coming. But on this subject, the Bible is very clear on how we, as Christians, should think about suffering. As Christians, we do not and we cannot deny the reality of suffering because first we know that we live in a fallen world where sin, where brokenness and fallenness and death exist. Even on our best days, we know this to be true. We feel this to be true. Second, we believe that suffering is not wasted. Suffering is not worthless. Even suffering in the flesh is not worthless because we believe that God is sovereign. And he is sovereign even over our pain and suffering and persecution. He was certainly sovereign over the cross. Sorry, Albert. He was sovereign over Christ's death. Because it was not an unfortunate result of him being naive. And therefore we know he is sovereign completely over our suffering. We know by his word that he is working in our lives to bring about sanctification and maturity and Christ-likeness in our suffering. He uses suffering to loosen our grips and love for this world and to tighten our hold and strengthen our faith in him. Certainly, Christ's suffering was not a waste, and our suffering is not a waste. Peter, in our passage this morning, he does encourage us in sort of an odd way for a Christian to endure. He encourages Christians to endure, which has been the, the theme of all of 1 Peter. We are to endure through suffering and persecution, and that is what Peter is getting at this morning in our passage. The first point that Peter makes this morning, and I think is very clear, and we just kind of started it, is that a Christian will suffer. A Christian will suffer. In this life, it is not a matter of if, but it is a matter of when and how. Again, as Christians, we understand that we live in a fallen 
world, which means since Genesis chapter 3, all people have a nature towards sin, and that sin ultimately leads death and judgment, and in that nature is a hatred for God. It also means that all creation is growing under the groaning, excuse me, under the curse of sin. And even as a redeemed people, we still feel the effects of sin and the curse of sin each and every day as we get older and we still get sick and we face temptations as well as we see sin's effects on those we love and our friends and in our families and in our world around us. There's pain, there's suffering, there's death all around the world. We tend to forget it, that it exists until it happens to us or it gets real close to us. This past week I heard of a good friend of mine. He was an older, older man but was very kind to Christina and I when we were in college and his family and he passed away. As Christians, we understand the reality of suffering because we have a biblical foundation. All suffering, because, all suffer because we live in a fallen world. But what Peter is, is saying without, without outright saying it is that if you are a Christian, then you will suffer and that you should expect to suffer and especially you should expect persecution from the world. Remember, that's the context of 1 Peter, to encourage Christians who are facing persecution because they were Christians who more and more did not look or went along with the world anymore, didn't go along with everyone else. And that was happening in their, that was happening in their society. They were looking more and more different than everyone else. What they ate, what they drank, what they participated in what they worshipped. Look back in verse 1. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Basically, there's an imperative, there's a command to prepare yourself for suffering. Which implies what? that there will be suffering if it hasn't already happened or it will continue to happen. Later in chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 12, Peter says, Do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. What is this? What's happening to me? Be prepared because it is coming. It's going to happen. Jesus warned his disciples to be ready and to be prepared for persecution. He said to them, you'll see what they'll do to me, your master. You'll see what they're going to do to me. What do you think they're going to do to you? Meaning you're going to suffer and you're going to be persecuted like me. Peter said there in verse 1, Christ suffered in the flesh. And since Christ's suffering is the pathway to glory from our previous passage, right there at the end of chapter 3, Christians should prepare themselves to suffer, knowing that suffering is the prelude to our eschatological reward. So to be prepared for suffering and persecution, Peter tells us to do what? 
to arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. We arm ourselves. This is a, a military term. To take up your weapons, your weapons of righteousness, and use them. Put them to work. Put them to practice. Go to the range. Take, take some training. Learn how to use these things. Take up your arms. And this isn't something that's unusual or something surprising to the Christian to this kind of wartime living. Because in Ephesians chapter 6, we are told to put on the full armor of God to be able to withstand against the schemes of the evil one. But Peter, he gives us a clarifier here that it's not weapons of this world that we arm ourselves with, but we are to arm ourselves with the same way of thinking. I love this. I find this to be so profound because Christians are often accused as being called ignorant, simple-minded, shallow, uneducated, and the biggest one these days, science deniers. And maybe for a lot of Christians and the perspective and the presentation that we sometimes present before the world, they're accurate. But Peter says we should, of all people, be a people who think. We should have a firm Christian worldview that shapes our thinking. We feel and we experience emotion, but what guides us is how we think. Because our minds, we have been given by God. We are a people of reason and logic. And our reasoning and our logic is firmly fixed in the infallible, inerrant word of God. God made us, God made you, God made me to be a people who thinks. And in suffering, our thinking and logic is the same mind of Christ. If Christ suffered, then you will suffer. You see, one of the dangers is that we are immersed in, that we are immersed with, is that we think that suffering just seems to be far from us. Life still seems relatively good and even safe for us Christians. But our culture is quickly moving post-Christian where increasingly they do not need or they do not want Christianity. But we also can be blinded by the materialism, the consumerism, technology, and prosperity. And so that when we hear such truths of that we will suffer and to be arm ourselves with the same line of thinking, that we rarely do anything with these truths. Yes, we love to apply them to our brothers and sisters who are suffering persecution around the world and martyrdom. And yet then in the same breath, we thank the Lord that it wasn't us. But doesn't the New Testament speak differently about the Christian life? Yet we must always remember the life of our Savior because it's his life that challenges us. Jesus lived as a stranger in exile in this world, and even among his own people, and so shall we. 
Jesus expected hardship, and he did, and so shall we. Be prepared as he was with the same sort of thinking that we shall be like our Savior, because as he says in the rest of verse 1, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now this doesn't mean that when a Christian suffers, they are obtaining some kind of sinless perfection, so then we should uh, uh, seek some kind of uh, uh, aesthetic lifestyle or uh, uh, something like that. But Peter is emphasizing, what he is emphasizing is that those who commit themselves to suffer, not intentionally, but those who are willing to be mocked and ridiculed for their faith, they show that they have no use for sin. Their treasure is Christ. Their desire is Christ. Their fear is the Lord and not the world. And when you see such a greater value in Christ, then guess what you have no value for? That which is hurtful and meaningless and evil and wicked, sin. So again, we have to ask the question, what do we value more? It's easily answered when life is good. And what happens often is when we suffer, is that that question is answered by suffering. And sometimes it's suffering that does the work in refining our hearts. And this is why we say God is sovereign over our suffering and that he uses it. Look at verse 2, because here we see the second way of preparation for suffering. First is to arm ourselves with the same line of thinking. Here's the second one. So as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. He says to prepare by living the rest of your life for the will of God. The rest of time in the flesh, meaning to live all the days of your life in the flesh for the will of God. To what end? To live not for human passions, to live not for sin according to the lust of the flesh or the eyes or the heart, but rather for the, wor- for the will of God. I remember when I was in college, one of the big discussions among the young college Christian students, uh, or Christian college students at this uh, Bible college we went to, um, you know, when you were there, you always wanted to sound spiritual, right? Because you're at this Bible school and everybody wants to sound spiritual all the time. There was a conversation that, that, uh, that, that persisted around the will of God. What is the will of God? What's the will of God for my life? That's God's will for my life. That's not... God's will for my life. Not if, the, if God wills, but the will of God. And this conversation was brought up during uh, definitely the, the, the Calvinism, Arminium debate, debates, um, but especially around questions about life, such as uh, who should I date? Uh, who, would, who should you marry? Or who, who should I marry? Or would I get married at all? And what kind of job should I take? Or what kind of ministry job should I do? Should I serve at this church? Should I should not. Should I be a pastor? Should I be a pastor? All of those particular things. And these conversations were crazy. And they were crazy because they sounded spiritual, right? The will of God. We want the will of God for our lives. They sounded spiritual, but honestly, they never meant anything. Because God's will was something to be discovered about every detail about someone's life. 
And then that could lead to, to the justification of anything, such as, I will not go out with you on a date because that's not God's will for me right now. Heard that one before. It's quite confusing because how do you really know what God's will is? I was very thankful because even when I was in college, I found this little pamphlet by, uh, he was a younger man at the time, John MacArthur, uh, calling this, this little pamphlet called Discovering the Will of God. And I was like, perfect. This is what I need, right? It's short, it's small, and it's exactly discovering God's will. He's going to open it up. He's going to tell me exactly what I'm going to do. And this is what he basically summed it up as. God's will is for your life is to honor Christ and to be obedient to him, and then everything else is good. And the same goes here. It is the will of God that we live to obedience. Peter has already given us as much. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. That's the will of God. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That is the will of God. And he contrasts it with human passions. Then we can know for sure in the preparation of our minds for suffering that the will is of God is to give ourselves over to the pursuit of holiness. Chapter 2, verse 11, he says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Right? War. War against our souls. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Same words again, right? Passions of the flesh, human passions, both meaning sin, sin of the world. Sin of the world, that which we will deal with in the next, in the next verses. But rather, it says the will of God is what we are to pursue. To keep our conduct honorable, even when we are persecuted, even when we are suffering, even when we are reviled. Be a blessing. No matter how fast, brothers and sisters, the tide of our cultural moral shifts are changing, we must swim faster and harder, relying on the word of God. Currents have changed, and the river is flowing faster and faster in human passions. In my parents' generation, the big moral debate was divorce and remarriage. In my generation, it was cohabitation between men and women who have forgotten and put away marriage. And now it's homosexuality and transgenderism. And as Christians living to the will of God, we must live according to the word of God and resist and swim against these issues and a whole host of others because there's a whole host more and still be a blessing at the same time. If forced to make a stand for the will of God, then be ready to face persecution. Be ready to suffer. Know that that is our reality as the elect exiles. And that changes then how we are to prepare. That changes how 
serious. It means to arm yourself with the same line of thinking. It changes how serious we need to be grounded in a Christian worldview and to resist the flesh and to live for the will of God. But the second point this morning for a Christian to endure is to understand, and this continues on our last point, is that a Christian puts away sin. For centuries, Christians have been at war with their flesh, with sin, with temptation that seeks to divert them from the will of God. Nothing derails you faster than sin. Sin dishonors Christ. It dishonors the gospel. It dishonors the Lord who is holy. It dishonors and weakens the church, and it weakens the soul to be ready to endure suffering. So Christians, we understand this is a part of the battle within. John Owen said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And as you grow and as you mature as a Christian, this makes more and more sense because to be holy is difficult and it's a hard road. The call of a Christian is to be growing in holiness to be growing in holiness, and to be putting away sin. It's very unfortunate today that what is presented as Christianity to, very, to much of the world is not Christianity at all. Honestly, it's been going on for decades now, and within many Christian circles and some Christian circles, there is not only the toleration of sin, but now the celebration of sin. The lack of church discipline, rampant sin, the approval of all kinds of evil has embedded itself within churches and all of denominations, and I use the term churches very loosely. What the scriptures clearly prohibit as sin, the very things that Christ died for are adored. Accepting humanity as they are is now more important than accepting the Lord as he has revealed himself. Is there anything that these apostate churches even consider sinful anymore? Well, maybe except for calling someone, calling something sin or calling someone a sinner. Or maybe it's actually believing the Bible and calling out immorality based upon the scriptures. That's the great sin. But biblical Christianity calls Christians to put away sin in our own lives. In verse 2, he told us to no longer live for human passions, sin. But look at verse 3. He says, for the time that it the past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. So, so there's a juxtaposition, right, that Peter is making earlier between the will of God, verse 2, and now here in verses 3 and 4, that's the will of man. Here's the will of man compared to this is the will of God. You have to see that here. And as Christians in Christ, we live for the will of God. And we resist the will of man externally and internally. And as Peter said, 
The past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. Meaning, enough is enough, Christian. Put away sin. Put it in the rearview mirror and move on from your sinful lifestyles, living in sensuality, sexual sin and lust, passions and orgies. Notice how these first three deal with sexual sin and they overlap to include everything that's outside of covenant marriage. He says drinking parties, lawless idolatry, which is profane lifestyles. There's not much that I can say about this list. I can describe it to you even more. But it's not necessary because we know these things because we see these things. This list was written 2,000 years ago. We could have wrote it today. The human heart has not changed outside of the work of Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you are involved in these lists of sin in any way, we'll do what Peter just said. Put it behind you. The past suffices. It's done. Yeah, that's who you were, but not anymore. Put them away. And have the word of God correct you and the Holy Spirit convict you to confess your sin and to repent of your sin. And brother or sister, there you will find grace. As all of us have. Grace upon grace. Turn from them. As Peter said, put them away. Enough is enough. But there is more here. In verse 4, we see a surprising outcome. A surprising outcome. Our poor brothers and sisters that face persecution when they pursue holiness, even in the face of persecution and suffering and holiness, because those who continue in their sin, those who are unbelievers, they are surprised when you do not join them no longer in the flood of debauchery. And what do they do? They will malign you. They will make fun of you. They will persecute you with words. They will accuse you. They will slander you. They will smear you. They will destroy your name and character. And they'll say, this old Christian thing, that's not you. I know who you are. You're 12 years of addiction, bro. You're a whole life of anxiety and fear. They will be surprised. And they will malign you. Now, I find what's interesting, what Peter uses here is the choice of words. And I think it's awesome. Because he says that they are caught up, what, in, this, in a flood of debauchery. Now, that definitely speaks of the volume. This isn't a trickle. This isn't a drip. This is a flood. This is a torrent of water, of sin. But do you remember last week the illustration of Noah and the flood? That it was the flood that God brought judgment upon the sinner and the same flood that brought salvation to the believer. So even as you may be maligned, we know sin's end. The end isn't the temporary gratification, but sin's end is judgment and death for the sinner and the 
unbeliever. When you change by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the old self is put off and Christ is put on, you are going to make some people, some old friends, upset and disappointed in you. I suspect that there are some of you in this room this morning that know exactly what God's Word is saying. You've experienced it. You've lived the surprise. You've lived and heard the maligning. Some of you have even lost friends and family of following Christ and holiness. There's a personal cost to following Jesus. There is a cost of losing your sin, if you count that a, a loss at all, but there is a cost of being maligned by those who you thought were your friends. Those who were surprised only malign you because, guess what? They feel threatened or judged because you now live differently. This is why Christianity is such a threat. This is why our little congregation is so dangerous to a corrupt culture. So let's not be surprised when you're maligned, or even when the church is maligned for its moral positions, even by people who call themselves Christian. Now, the church might deserve some criticism, but if we continue to live in the same flood of debauchery of this world, then we are inviting the same reproach upon ourselves. So brother and sister, to endure is to put away sin, to put it in the rearview mirror and put it behind you. Now those first two points, those are kind of hard. Things don't sound as good, not as encouraging. Well, let me give you some encouragement from verses 5 and 6, and we'll deal with the, the problem verse as well. Because these are meant to encourage us. The last point, a Christian is vindicated. Look at verse 5. Peter continues, he says, But they, unbelievers, will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. That's Jesus. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Because of verse 5 and 6, they are meant to serve as a reminder to the Christian who is suffering. It's a reminder to, to us who are suffering as Christians, who are striving to put away sin, and to embrace a, a holy life and living for the will of God despite being attacked by former friends and, and even family members that, to be reminded that judgment is coming. So even if the mocking and the maligning continues your whole entire life, even if a church has to meet underground for its whole existence, judgment is coming, and they, unbelievers, the sinners, will have to give an account and it's truly a fearful thing to stand before a holy God in your sin. A Christian can endure. You can persevere through suffering knowing that judgment is coming because they, those who malign you and live for sin, they will have to give 
an account. They will be held accountable for their sin, for their rebellion, for their wickedness, and the rejection of God. And all will be judged. As he says there in verse 5, all of those, those who are still alive and all of those who have died, the past and the present. And if God is ready to judge, then brothers and sisters, we must be ready as well. Not to judge, but to be ready for judgment. James chapter 5, verse 8, You also be patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against the one another, brothers, so that it may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Romans 13, 12, The night is gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Jesus teaches us about judgment as well. He says no one knows the day of the hour of his coming. He says when he comes back, it'll be in a manner that is visible to all. His coming, and his coming ends the effects of the fall, and Jesus teaches us to always be ready because the end is near. We are reminded of the coming judgment from Peter, not so that we would hold unbelievers to our own condemnation, but rather to encourage us that we too will be vindicated and that suffering and persecution, brothers and sisters, is only temporary. We do not need to judge the world, for the world will be judged as it already stands condemned. Now in verse 6, we see once again a Christian's vindication. But first, let's look at what Peter means by preaching the gospel to the dead. Do we preach the gospel to those who are physically dead? No, we don't. But that view only makes sense if you look at chapter 3, verse 19, the, one of the problem passages last week, as being the spirits in prison or the unrepentant dead that Jesus went and preached to them. That only, this only makes sense. That view only makes sense if you believe that. And as we saw last week and talked about last week, we showed how that's an incorrect view based upon the Scripture. So then those who are dead, that are preached to, are they unbelievers? Are they the spiritually dead? And I think that certainly makes sense. Certainly that the view agrees with Paul that unbelievers are spiritually dead. However, when Peter means dead, he usually means dead. He means physically dead, like in verse 5. Verse 5, he says, the living and the dead, those who are already dead. So I would suggest to you that the dead that Peter is speaking about are believers, are Christians who had already died physically. They heard the gospel when they were alive. They heard the preaching of the gospel and they believed, but yet still died in the flesh. Meaning they were judged in the flesh the way that people are. Now, why would Peter write it like this? I think it's because unbelievers in the world and the accusations that Christians have faced over the centuries is that when a Christian dies, that's proof that there's no advantage in being a Christian since we all die. Now, what's true is, is that we all will die. Unless Christ returns first, we are all going to die. 
But from God's perspective, the Christian, the one who has faith in Christ and has believed in Christ, heard the gospel, has believed in the gospel, and who is living according to the Spirit, and then goes through death, that Christian knows that by the Holy Spirit, they will be raised again. They might live in the Spirit the way that God does. The same judgment that will, that, that will destroy the unbeliever, the Christian, because of Christ, will safely pass through. That means, brothers and sisters, we do not even fear death. Peter was looking way beyond this life. And he was looking way beyond this life to loosen your grips here. To stop putting so many eggs in this faulty basket. Christians look to the resurrection of the dead because Christ is alive. When we are maligned, when we are persecuted, our greatest desire is for justice. I get that. We want these wrongs to be made right, and we will do anything to get those things right. And what God's word is saying to you is, oh, Christian, the Lord will vindicate you. He has vindicated you on the cross. So look to the cross. Consider the treatment of your Savior, Jesus Christ, and he was vindicated. He was resurrected. The world will be judged, but you, because of Christ, the good news is that through, though you may die, you will still get God and you will live. You've been vindicated. So we have hope. And we rejoice in this hope. No matter what comes, we rejoice in this hope. That suffering is temporary, persecution is temporary. Brothers and sisters, do you have hope? You know, this passage this morning serves as a tool to realign our hearts and minds to be set on Christ. To have a biblical perspective about suffering and persecution. This is good news. This is good news that we now know to expect suffering in this life so that we will know how to be prepared, to be armed with the same line of thinking as Christ and to pursue the will of God by obedient living according to the word of God. Our posture in this life is not a comfortable, relaxing day on the beach with no troubles, with no worries, and with no protection. Our posture in this life is wartime. But we have good news because we are no longer slaves to sin and who we were is not who we are anymore. And so if the Lord wills that we suffer, then let it be used to extinguish the desires of the flesh and the human passions that wish to ensnare us. Let us put away sin. And lastly, it is truly, really good news because as Christians we will be vindicated in the day of Christ.
and that we too will be resurrected as Christ was. Though we will suffer, though we are at war with sin, and though we will be maligned, do we have something wonderful and glorious to look forward to? Death is not the end. We have Christ. And all God's people say,